I was struck as we prayed the collect for uh, purity this morning at the opening of the service, this line about God, from whom no secrets are hid. This doesn't have anything to do with my sermon, but I just wanted to mention this, that it's amazing. God obviously sees us. So you walk in here this morning and you uh, are in all kinds of places, I'm sure, as many different places as there are people in the room. But you can be assured that God knows exactly where you are. God knows exactly what's going on in your life. You can't hide anything from him, and that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing, because he sees it all and he loves you anyway. So just be encouraged in that as we move forward today and as you go about your week this week. All right, the reality of resurrection, which is what we're looking at again today together, says something important about matter. We've looked over the last couple of weeks at what the resurrection says about Jesus and about his work. We've seen last week in a bit of atypical form how the resurrection relates to history and truth and those real questions. And today we're turning for this, this next installment in the Eastertide sermon series called Resurrection Matters to the subject of matter itself, of the stuff of creation. And we're going to turn to Romans chapter 8 for our exploration of this topic this morning, where for the moment at least, in this section of one of the greatest chapters in the New Testament, in the middle of one of the greatest arguments and theological reflections that, we ever, that, that, that has ever been given, Paul pulls back the lid, he pulls back the veil just a little bit and gives us a glimpse into his grand vision for the world, for the cosmos, and provides a glimpse into the world's future, as well as into our future, as those who have been united to the Messiah, Jesus, by faith. And Paul's claim is quite simple. It's that creation, or all of creation, all the stuff, will be renewed. It will be set free from corruption, decay, and futility. And this freedom and this renewal, through the infusion of God's renewing, healing, restorative justice, and grace throughout his world, will come about, and this is the mysterious part of this text, through the glory of the children of God. That's you and me. You may not be feeling all that glorious this morning, but this has to do with us in a way and our glory, and we'll come back to that. Uh, The resurrection isn't mentioned explicitly in our text in Romans 8, but it is nonetheless the foundation, obviously, for this argument. And just a few verses earlier, in verse 11, Paul speaks of the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And that surely that same spirit who is inside of us will give life to our mortal bodies. That God will do that through the same spirit. Which is a promise of resurrection based on Jesus' resurrection. So, resurrection, the glory that it brings, are the launching pad then for this section that we're considering this morning. The main idea to grab onto from this text is that matter matters. That matter, the stuff of the world, won't be discarded but will be redeemed. And that this is what the resurrection of Jesus has signified And that this then has significant implications for our lives in the present day as well. And we'll get to that by the end. Um, I hope to unpack at least a few of the questions. There are many that are raised in this text. But we're going to proceed forward on this journey through Romans 8 with three basic headings. First, the background to the renewal of creation. Second, the specifics in this text about the renewal of creation. And then thirdly, the wider implications of creation's renewal for our lives in the present. So that's the simple three steps. So first, the background, the background of the renewal of creation. 
you can't jump into Romans 8 without going back a little bit because it's like jumping into the beginning of a movie. You might get a lot out of the action scene, but you might be really confused about the meaning and so on of who's fighting who and what's really going on. So we've got to lay down a little bit of the groundwork of the plot. We have to pick up the plot that Paul is dealing with as he's working on his argument. The main theme of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 17, that in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So we've got to wrestle a little bit. So what's the righteousness of God? And what does this have to do with the renewal of creation? In Paul's understanding, the righteousness of God is God's faithfulness to his covenant with Israel. And by virtue of his faithfulness to his covenant with Israel, God's people, it's God's faithfulness to all creation. Because the means by which God would be faithful to the world that he created was through Israel and his covenant with Israel. So this is a a term that that, that holds a lot of power in thinking that God was going to deal with the problems that entered into the world through sin and evil and death in a decisive and real way through the people of God, through Israel ultimately then fulfilled through their corporate representative, the Messiah, through Jesus, the Son of God, and through his life, death, and resurrection. So here's the point. The story of Scripture begins with a beautiful world that God created, in which human beings served as God's agents to rule and reign and have dominion over that world as those who have been made in his image and to carry out his benevolent purposes over creation and to develop, if you will, and nurture the inherent potential within creation, to grow it up, so to speak, as a baby to a full-functioning adult. God had built creation with lots of latent potential. And what we need to hear from the beginning of the story is that creation is good. The world is good. It's full of things that are beautiful and have lots of potential to be unlocked. And this is obviously a critically important position that we hold and believe to in the church. So many spiritualities and the resurgence of spirituality in the 21st century, reject this fundamental plank of the goodness of creation. They operate in a kind of dualistic world, physical things kind of built perhaps way back to Plato. The spiritual things, the soul has this kind of inherent immortality, the body and matter is going to be destroyed, it's just holding back the real life of who we are as human beings. And so we create this kind of physical, non-physical dualism where the spirit is good and the physical world is bad. And then the the narrative of salvation within that point of view of the world is that salvation is just rescue from the bad, i.e. the material and the physical, to being disembodied and living on forever in a kind of disembodied bliss. We refer to this throughout the history of the development of spirituality and thought in many ways as Gnosticism, a view that creation itself is bad but that the spiritual realm is good. And that kind of Gnosticism runs its way through all kinds of thinking, both in the church and outside the church today. It's an anti-matter position that the Christian doctrine of creation undermines. God created a good world, and God remains committed to that world. Yes, in fact, evil does enter in and becomes a massive problem, but this only further reveals God's commitment to the creation that he made as good the righteousness of God that Paul is expounding in the whole book of Romans. God sets a course to redeem creation and to rescue it from decay and futility. And that story of rescue finds its culmination in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is Paul's argument in Romans. And God, therefore, is faithful 
to this vision that had begun to develop in the Old Testament. We read about it in Isaiah 65 of a new heavens and a new earth. Of the earth being full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea from Isaiah 11 and so forth. So that's the background to the text in Romans 8 that we're dealing with this morning. So the specifics then of this renewal of creation. We can think about the gospel then as God's answer to evil and its distortion of matter. In this, the gospel, uh, in the gospel, it's, it, uh, it's the case that evil is dealt with, that death is defeated, and that the inescapable cycle of decay and corruption that we all bear witness to in our own bodies as well as in life is actually decisively undone. And the resurrection of Jesus is the first proof of this reversal of the natural course of creation under the sway of sin, evil, and death. That bit of matter, Jesus' body, does not see corruption. It doesn't return to dust, as Genesis 3 said that we would as a consequence of sin. But it's renewed, and it's infused with the power and grace of God by his Spirit. That first act of new creation, and that's the point of the reading from the Gospel of Luke this morning, that Jesus eats this fish and shows that he is truly flesh and bones. He truly is an embodied person, again, on the other side of death. That signifies to Paul and to all of us that all creation will be redeemed, led out of bondage from uh, the bondage that creation is in to futility, decay, and corruption, and into the beautiful new future for which God's people have always hoped from way back in the prophet Isaiah. So we need to understand then, before moving any further, that the Christian hope is not for a disembodied spiritual bliss. It is, on the contrary, for an embodied, physical, matter-filled, new creation, new heavens and new earth, that is more beautiful, more magnificent, more mysterious, more wonderful than the creation that we encounter and see today. Now, let's return to glory for a moment that Paul picks up in Romans 8, the theme that shows repeatedly in Romans as well as elsewhere. Don't forget get Colossians 1, 27. We have this on our wall in our bedroom. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is a theme throughout the New Testament. And here in our passage in verse 17, Paul says that if you are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, or you are, provided that you suffer with Christ, that you may also be glorified with him. That's verse 17. And then in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us in verse 18. Our destination is glory. So what is this glory that the New Testament speaks about as our destination? Two things to say about this. It's the glory of reigning over the creation of ruling and reigning as the agents of God's healing and restorative justice under Jesus, the true human who reigns. And it's the glory, secondly, of the kind of body that is required to exercise that kind of rule, an incorruptible, immortal body that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 15 at length. So it's the glory of our function as rulers over this new creation that's coming about, and it's the glory of a body that is fit for that function, a body that itself is not subject any longer to death and decay, and therefore can rightly be 
the possession of the agents that are intended to God for, that God intends to use to eliminate de- death and decay from his creation. This is the glory that Jesus now enjoys. We believe that Jesus is humanly, bodily, at the right hand of the Father, on the throne, ruling over creation as the truly human one, who fulfills in himself that purpose for which human beings were created in Genesis chapter 1, to rule and reign and exercise dominion over creation. And Jesus now enjoys the glory of that position, not just in terms of his rule, but also in terms of the kind of, as we've seen in the past few weeks, the transformed physicality of his new creation resurrection body that is comprised now of matter that is no longer subject to decay and aging and death as our body is. This is where Jesus is in the present. And we, Paul says, will share in that glory as human beings, now united to Jesus by faith. We will return to our place with Jesus now over creation as a new human being, a new creation human being, residing with him and then exercising with him reign and rule over that new creation. In Romans 5, talks about us reigning in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And here in Romans 8, he points us toward that position of glory that comes from that function of reigning, that is our future destiny. And this is what Paul says then, here in Romans 8. It is that that this is the point at which and for which creation is longing. Verse 19. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. The creation is eagerly longing and waiting for the day when the children of God will be put back in their proper place over God's creation and ruling and reigning. So Paul is articulating a position here that's informed by the fall of Genesis 3. That creation itself, matter itself, is under bondage and subject to futility as a consequence of the sin of those who are at the pinnacle of creation, human beings. But it goes under subjection in the hopes, verse 20 and 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and encounter the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Itself won't encounter, that the creation itself won't gain glory like the children of God, but it will gain freedom underneath the glory of the children of God. It will enjoy the freedom that comes about as a result of human destiny in the glory of Jesus. So here's the logic. When human beings are fully restored to their original position over creation, as Jesus has already been restored to through his resurrection, and we will join him, as agents then of God's benevolent healing justice in our rule under Jesus, our elder brother, that when this restoration happens, when human beings are put back in the proper place in Christ, This will be the mechanism by which all of matter is liberated from its current bondage. The human rule in the future will be the means by which the current bondage of creation is undone. That creation then experiences its own exodus, if you will, out of slavery into freedom. Somehow, in the revealing of the sons of God, verse 19, and our attaining the glory for which we were created and to which we are redeemed, which indicates rule, all creation will be made new and set free. And Paul's argument throughout this text, or throughout Romans, and as well in this text, is that we as 
the human ones, have already tasted and experienced the power of that future day by virtue of God's Spirit. So in verse 23, he talks about us having the first fruits of the Spirit. And it's this present power at work in our lives that assures us of the future redemption and renewal of all things and of our place in that. But the world isn't yet free from decay and futility. And its pathway to freedom, our pathway to that freedom, much like Jesus' pathway to that freedom and glory, is through suffering. Now, that's another sermon entirely. But we want to note that the pathway to glory is always through suffering, which is why Paul says, if we suffer with him, then we will also be glorified. We'll share his glory. This is the pathway. And so as we wait and, and long for that final day to come, Paul says in verse 22 that all creation is groaning and that we too are groaning and that the Spirit of God himself in verse 26 is groaning in the pains of childbirth, awaiting the arrival of something beautiful and new that is to come, which has been guaranteed in the resurrection of Jesus already. That new thing in which the pain and futility and corruption of creation will finally come to an end. And we have a huge part to play in that, Paul says, as human beings now redeemed, metaphorically now resurrected by the Spirit, and soon to be, when Jesus returns, physically transformed by the same Spirit that transformed Jesus. So that's the specifics. Let's think about then, in closing, the wider implications of this for our lives now as God's people. This is the vision of the world's future given to us in the New Testament and of matter's future in particular, that matter will be redeemed and not discarded. And we've seen the unique role that we play in that as those over, reigning over, and ruling over the creation. So how do we think about matter then? What are some of the ways that we see the importance of matter? I want to just give two briefly and then talk about some of the implications uh, for us more as we live our lives. But two ways that we see the importance of matter in light of this view of matter being rescued and redeemed are in the sacraments. That through water in baptism, through bread and through wine in the Lord's Supper, that God has somehow, mysteriously, and yes, it's a mystery, but that God is somehow showing us the significance, the importance, and in some ways, the end for all matter. That it will be used to bring glory to God. That it will be used in the life of the new creation. And it's in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper that the church has always seen that in some real way, the new age is being brought into the present day that we're being sustained in our new creation life through the sacraments of baptism and the ongoing feeding on the body of Christ, which incidentally is the only part of the world of matter that has actually already been resurrected and made new, which now in the sacrament of the Lord's table comes to feed, sustain, and strengthen the children of God as we groan and suffer, waiting that final day for the redemption of our bodies. So it's in the sacraments that God shows us that matter itself plays a key role in his new creation world as it becomes the bridge point, if you will, between the present day of corruption and the future day of eternal beauty and incorruption. But here's the, here, here's, so 
let's think about then how we can express this kind of new creation and perspective on matter in our own lives for a moment. If we're destined for this future glory that includes ruling over God's creation, then that begs the question of what is our present purpose as the church? Our function, future function, as rulers over God's new creation then must be worked out now in the present day as we seek to exercise God's gracious, benevolent, healing, justice, and grace over the parts of creation that we have touch with, we have points of contact with. Our bodies, yes, but also the world in which we live, the world that we see, the world where we work, the world where we reside in our neighborhoods, and so on and so forth. We can't simply ignore matter and creation. We can't pursue an approach to Christianity or an understanding of salvation that's simply getting people out of this broken and corrupt world. We can't say that this world is just going to pass away, so we don't really care what happens to the world. But instead, we're called now, in a way that anticipates that future glory, to express and exercise God's healing, restorative justice over creation. So what might that mean? I know that sounds kind of crazy, so let's just finish trying to get concrete for a second. What might that mean? Well, in God's new world, our future, there will be no injustice. It'll be a world of perfect justice. So pursuing justice in the present day, engaging in local neighborhood committees and councils, or serving on the board of a a local um, nonprofit that's working to give affordable housing to people in your neighborhood and bring about housing for all people, those can be very specific ways of embodying in the present what our future role will be in God's coming age the future world. In God's new world, there won't be any racism. People won't be judged based on the color of their skin. They won't be looked down upon or mistreated because of that. So engaging in conversations today as God's children about race and speaking words of truth and reconciliation and peace in the midst of those charged and challenging conversations, pursuing friendships with those who are different from us, all of this then would be included in the kinds of applications of our perspective on the future of matter. In God's new world, there will be abundant beauty that awe that you have when you're out in nature, when you see a waterfall, some of us did this last weekend, or when you go out and climb a mountain and you see the beauty of creation, that is just a foretaste of what the future of matter will do, that it will point us in the direction of beauty and wonder. So we can encourage and exhort the artists among us then to take the stuff of creation, the materials that an artist will work with, and to create his or her art in a way that reflects both the brokenness of the world. Yes, Jesus' own transformed physicality bore the marks of his crucifixion, but also point us toward the destiny of the world of beauty and wonder and a window into the greatness and majesty of God. In God's new world, creation will not simply be exploited for human ends or for greedy purposes, but there will be a harmony between human and non-human creation and matter. That can then be reflected now in advocating for sustainable practices in business, in stewarding the resources of God's creation well now, in pursuing the care of the created order in a very real sense, 
Obviously, that can be taken way too far to the point where the apparent goal then becomes the removal of humankind from nature, which is obviously not the biblical picture. But on the other hand, it can also, and perhaps more often, be neglected entirely, where the stuff of creation gets exploited, drained, and used for our own selfish ends in a way that doesn't need to be the case. And that shouldn't be the case for those who have been redeemed. In God's new world, there will be resources for all. So pursuing business and the creation of wealth and jobs in a manner that is not just about building one's own kingdom or empire, this would be the work of new creation people who understand the destiny of matter. And in God's new world, there will be no sin, no evil. So we live as the children of God in the present day, groaning and suffering and and kind of aching for that future of our glory. We live with a radical commitment to holiness, empowered by God's own spirit. And we'll come back to that in a couple of weeks as we think about the resurrection and ethics. When Paul writes about, creation, about resurrection in, at, at greatest length in 1 Corinthians 15, he finishes with an amazing affirmation to give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You'd almost expect him to say, well, just wait for the future when God brings this to pass. But in fact, Paul says, no, no, because of the resurrection, because matter is going to be redeemed, I want you to go into the world that you're living in now and give yourselves fully to the work of God's kingdom and new creation to let it be expressed in you and through you in all these kinds of spheres. And there are many, many more because of this reality that is coming. Finish by just saying we can't build this world now, obviously. And it's a problem when the church takes this kind of promise and hope and turns it into an attainable reality by our own efforts. We need to remember that we will always be groaning. However much we're able to express the reality of God's restorative and healing justice and grace in the midst of our world over our own bodies, we will never do it in full until the final day that Jesus returns and infuses our own bodies by the power of the Spirit and all of matter with his grace in such a way that it transforms the world once and for all. So we can't get into a kind of triumphalism from this. But we remember, as a community, that matter matters. That the stuff of this world has a future. And in our prayers, in our partnership together, strengthened by God's word and spirit through the sacraments and the body of Christ, the church, that we press on as those on a pilgrimage and on a journey together, bearing witness to the future that we know is coming for all of stuff, and yet knowing that we only glimpse it and experience it in part. This keeps us on our knees. It keeps us as a people of prayer, a people of dependency, a people of faith, a people of hope. Let's pray.